This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is The Book Show, where I bring you conversations with the best fiction authors from the English-speaking world. Later, you'll hear from Australian writers Kate Kennedy and Ronnie Scott. And right now, we're starting with Samantha Shannon and a sapphic fantasy. Samantha Shannon is the English writer behind the hugely successful Bone Season fantasy series. In 2019, she released a standalone novel, The Priory of the Orange Tree, a feminist retelling of the St George and the Dragon legend. But that book did not stand alone that long. Uh, She's now released a prequel called A Day of Fallen Night, and it's an 800-plus page epic of powerful women, divided beliefs and dragons. Hi, Samantha. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. What's your relationship with fantasy writing? Were you a big fantasy reader when you were a kid? Yeah, I was always a massive fantasy reader. I think it's it's pretty much the only genre that I've ever got deeply into. Like I will read outside it, but it's the one that I always return to. It's the one I've always written. Um, I started writing when I was about 12 as sort of a, a major hobby. And I always just jumped straight into fantasy. And it was actually dragons from a, a very early point. <laughs> Dragons? Why dragons? Well, I watched, um, I, I don't know if you've seen it, I watched a film called Dragonheart. When <gasps> I, I remember kid. that film, yeah, with Sean Connery was the voice of the dragon, right? Yeah, Sean Connery and it had Dennis Quaid and it was such a, it's just a, such a great fun film that came out in like sort of the mid 90s um, when I was about six. And I watched that film at the cinema and I just, it must have just made such an impression on me because ever since then, I love dragons. And I recently found some incredibly early manuscripts, and I put that in inverted commas, that I wrote when I was about 10. And it it was all, it was all about dragons. So, so they've been in my head for a really long time. And interestingly, I, my, my debut, The Bone Season, was not about dragons. Um, but then I had a chance a few years later when there was a break in that series to write The Priory of the Orange Tree. And that was when I got to do my dragon book. <laughs> uh, Lord of the Rings, was that an important text for you? Uh, yes, it was. Um, and the films as well um, left a really big impression on me. So to- Tolkien is someone I admire very much, especially as someone who's interested in language. Um, I was actually very lucky that I got to do an I was sent by The Guardian in the UK to go and review a Tolkien exhibition a couple of years ago. And I was just so fascinated by his use of language and his passion for it. And I suppose that's where my personal inspiration with Tolkien comes from. It's it's mostly based around how incredible he was as with etymology and linguistics. What about um, his portrayal of women? Uh, Do the women star in the Tolkien books? It's interesting because I remember when I was young, like I said, I went to see the the Fellowship of the Ring uh, in the cinema. I think I was probably about 10 at the time. I think it was 2001. And there's that incredible scene in the film where Arwen uh, saves Frodo from the Nazgul. And that left, when I was young, I'd, I hadn't often seen women doing things like that in fantasy. And I remember I ran straight out to get the book. I went with my dad and I just begged him, like, I need to get the book of this because the book is always better. And then I realised that in the book, um, Arwen doesn't actually have that scene. It's a male elf who who takes Frodo to Rivendell. And I remember that that devastated me at the time. <laughs> so there was that disappointment that the women did not take as strong a role um, in the book as I had realised. Um, but I think Tolkien still does create very interesting female characters when he created Eowyn and Galadriel, who is a really fascinating and layered character. Um, but when I went to write The Prior of the Orange Tree, I knew that I wanted the women to be in a very prominent position and driving a lot of the action. It was essentially a novel I wrote for my younger self um, who who really wanted to see Arwen doing that in the books as well. There's such a, a swell of this at the moment, isn't there, of these 
retellings of stories, this reclaiming of the genre and pushing women's stories to the fore. Uh, How do you make this your own, Samantha? I agree there's definitely a a huge upsurge in it at the moment. I've noticed particularly with um, reimaginings of the lives of women in history and mythology, and Mm -hmm. I think that's become such a huge movement in publishing recently. You know, you have books about the Greek goddesses, for example, um, they're getting a lot of uh, sort of interest and attention or figures from Greek mythology in general. And the way I did it, well, it was interesting because the legend of St. George and the Dragon is the ultimate story of the damsel in distress in some ways. And there are lots of similar legends from around the world, uh, like this, especially in various European countries that I looked at. And would, would you mind just recapping for us what the legend of St. George is and how it is a damsel in distress story? Well, in its most basic form, um, it is about a city or a town that's being terrorised by a dragon. And a knight um, comes riding along and says that he will save the town from the dragon, and he does. Um, It usually involves, there's this sense of a lottery of lives, usually. So the people have uh, given their livestock to the dragon, and now they are starting to vote for people to be given to the dragon instead. And in the legend, um, the king or the, the leader of this town will give his daughter to the dragon. And that's when St. George steps in or the St. George-like figure, um, he will step in, save the princess from the dragon and they live happily ever after. So it is it is a pretty simple story in its, in its most sanitised form. Um, but when I look back at the roots of the legend, um, I found details that I was troubled by. Um, so one of them, there's a version of the story, I think it's actually the very earliest version of the story, where George says that he will kill the dragon, but only if the people convert to Christianity. Um, and then there was other versions of the story where George is is kind of a, a very misogynistic person. And there was a lot of details that I just found a bit disturbing. And interestingly, there was some, there was a woman in the legend who was almost entirely written out of it. So the main, the main uh, version of the story I was looking at was one from the Elizabethan era. And in that, there is an enchantress called Caleb who gives St. George his sword and sends him on his journey. But she's almost entirely missing from modern reimaginings of the story. So I wanted to reintroduce her in my retelling of it. And I also wanted to think about who the princess was and to give her some more layers and to you know really build a character for her. And maybe even have her save herself. Yeah, so she's uh, she she does defeat the dragon in the Priory of the Orange Street. I thought that was an interesting idea. Like, what if it was her? And if it was her, what would what would have happened to the knight? So, in my version of the story, um, the the Saint George like figure is called Galleon Berethnet, uh, and he goes to the land of Lacia, which is uh, named after what the the city is called in the earliest version of the story, and. You know, it's it plays out similarly to the research I've done. He offers to kill the dragon, but only if the people of Lacia will convert to his religion of the six virtues. Um, and Clearland, who's the princess, says, "Well, we don't want to convert to the six virtues, so we I will I will kill the dragon." And that's what happens. And then she sets up this uh, secret society of dragon slayers, and then he returns to his country and he lies and he says that he killed the dragon. So that's kind of the one of the central tensions at the heart of the story. Uh, and I love the way that this. Um the different interpretations of this story underpin huge kind of religious divides across the world you've created. It's really, really compelling. Um, you talked about this group of dragon slayers, uh, this group of women called the Priory, this group of warriors. What can you tell me about your Priory of the Orange Tree? I'm so thrilled that we actually got to go more to the Priory of the Orange Tree in the prequel, because interestingly, even though the first book is called the Priory of the Orange Tree, we don't actually see a lot of it. But basically, the Priory of the Orange Tree uh, is a secret society of women who train as dragon slayers, and their purpose is to guard against the return of the Nameless One, which in, in the book is the, well, the the name or lack of of the dragon that attacked Lacia. So in A Day of Fallen Night, they've been waiting 500 years and they always have a, a large group of women who are trained to, to kill dragons just in case. But in 
at this point in the timeline, they're starting to wonder if they still have a purpose because there have been no dragons like the Nameless One for centuries. Um, so that was really interesting to examine when they think they're losing their purpose and the younger generation is kind of straining against them. But yeah, essentially, it's a, it's a matriarchal society of warriors. And you better tell us uh, what the men do <laughs> at the Priory, because I love this. So it's a kind of classic reversal of um, traditional gender expectations. So the men handle the cooking and the child rearing and that sort of thing. And then the women uh, do the the fighting. Um, and it was very important to me that the men's roles were still valued because roles that women have traditionally been assigned to are absolutely crucial for the running of society. And I didn't really want to do a complete role reversal where the men's work was devalued. Um, but yeah, I just thought that would be an, an interesting idea to just completely flip them, essentially. I found something very soothing about thinking about a group of men away, baking bread for the women. Um, it was lovely. <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about uh, a concept that I know you've put a lot of thought into, Samantha, and this is the concept of the strong female character because certainly if we're talking about these women at the Priory, they are kind of your classic strong female character, right? Like they wield swords, they're tough, they can be... Um, Cynical, perhaps, not too emotional. Uh, what, uh, what's your take on this idea of the strong female character? Oh, I have some thoughts. Um, <laughs> so, okay, I'll, I'll try to, to summarise it as best I can. So when I first started, um, when I was first published, I was published in 2013. That was when my debut came out. And there was this real interest in the idea of the strong female character back then. And I have a theory that it was in the wake of the Hunger Games and Katniss Everdeen, who is a brilliant character. Um, I think she, she kind of is associated with traits we have considered masculine in the past. So, cause she's very stoic. Um, she's a literal hunter gatherer. You know, she cares for her family. Uh, she doesn't connect very well emotionally to people. And I personally think that she was then she was rightfully seen as an amazing step forward for how women are represented. And it was, I think she's a, a brilliant character. But then she started being held up as the ideal strong female character. And imagine that capitalised. And it was, I think she was contrasted with characters like, for example, Bella Swan from Twilight, who was more interested in marriage and children and that sort of thing. And I think that this contrast became quite extreme to the point that Katniss was being held up as the female character that all other female characters should be aspiring to. And it's interesting because I've never seen male characters treated like that way. Like, we, you know, if you're talking about a male character, someone will not generally be like, oh, he's just like Sherlock Holmes or whatever other male character. <laughs> um, and But interestingly, every time I did an interview at the time, um, my female character in my bone season series page was constantly being compared to either Katniss Everdeen or I was being asked, you know, why did you write these strong female characters? And it was starting to, at first I was fine with it, but then it was very, very persistent for probably about two or three years, I would say. And I think it almost got to a point where Katniss herself as a character was flattened into this figure that she never was because she's actually a very vulnerable and flawed character and that's what makes her so wonderful. But yeah, she was kind of flattened into this blueprint of the strong female character. And then if you had characters who, I don't know, like to wear dresses, for example, they were kind of demeaned for that, for, for more traditionally feminine pursuits. And I, I think I, the reason I noticed this particularly was I did an interview in Madrid back in uh, 2014, I think. And the interviewer said to me, um, as part of the questions, he said, um, when you sat down to write Paige, why did you decide to make to not make her a strong female character like Katniss Everdeen? And I had to get him to repeat the question just to be sure that I understood. He he was asking me why Paige was not strong like Katniss. And to this day, I'm kicking myself for not asking him exactly what he meant by that, because I think Paige is a very you know strong character in various ways, but she's also vulnerable in others and she's human. So I yeah, that, I, I think that was the, the moment where it really came to the forefront for me that my character was being kind of unfairly compared to a version of Katniss that I wasn't even sure really existed. Mm. And I think this is getting way, way better now. 
But there was this stage where the phrase strong female character was just driving me spare. And it, I, I have a lot more thoughts on it. I've actually, I've written like, you know, a, a whole speech on this because I was so passionate about it. But basically my goal in the Roots of Chaos books and indeed the Bone Season series is to present a range of women who have lots of different strengths. So you do have the women who are warriors. I think that's great and it's fun. But then you also have uh, characters who are, for example, great politicians. Um, you know, they're, they're brilliant public speakers and their strengths lie in other areas. I think that if we just hold up the strong female character as one kind of strength, I don't think that that is particularly helpful or progressive. Mm. And Roots of Chaos is the name uh, you've given to this series, which includes The Priory of the Orange Tree and this new book, A Day of Fallen Night. Uh, you're talking about different types of strengths for women. Um, we've got to acknowledge, gosh, one of the strongest things that women must do is bring children into the world, right? Right. Yes. So that's that's something that I wanted to go into in this book as well. Um, it is very much about the theme of motherhood that, it, and that's something I've wanted to explore in the book for a really long time because um, I think many women in our lives will will have a moment when we reckon with the concept of motherhood and whether it's for us or not. Um, whether it's something we want or not, and if we can be mothers or not. And I, I just really wanted to have a, a whole book where lots of characters have different relationships with motherhood and where I really, I wanted to present them all really non-judgmentally because I feel like whatever decision you make, it can be judged. Um, so, you know, if you don't want children, you're selfish. If you do want children, you're selfish. If you have a child, then you're expected to have another child so that they have a sibling. I mean, my, my own mom said that when I was born, um, she said straight away, like the second I was in the world, people were saying to her, when are you going to have another one that you can't leave her on her own? She needs a brother or sister. And my mom, uh, she, I had a brother 12 years later, but she didn't appreciate that at the time, just immediately being told, like, you know, fresh out of having me. Um, and I know many amazing mothers in my life, um, my, my own mother, my friends, family members who I, I wanted to celebrate and I wanted to honor them. Um, but I also wanted to look at women who, like me, do not want to be mothers. Um, so there's a character called Glorian, uh, who is a princess who is expected to be a mother um, for just, the, you know, she doesn't have a choice in the matter particularly, and she's essentially coerced into it. Uh, there's another character called Dumai, who also doesn't want to be a mother. And I loved exploring her story because she's um, about the same age as me, and she's very similar to me in that regard. And yeah, it was supposed to be a book that just looked at lots of different perspectives on motherhood and is hopefully one that embraces everyone's choice equally. Like if you want to be a mother, that's wonderful. If you don't want to be a mother, that's also completely valid. I really enjoyed these different portrayals of these women in these various kingdoms and queendoms across the world uh, you've created. Um, a character we haven't mentioned is the character of Tanuva. Um, she is... Part of this priory of the orange tree, one of these women warriors, uh, but she, uh, she's she's a little bit more gentle, I would say, than the warriors around her. Is that a fair description? Yes, definitely. Tanuva is a very introverted person by nature. She's quite reserved, and she is she is gentle by nature, and she's very. She has a lot of compassion in her, which is what made her so much fun for me to write. Her head was a, a lovely place to be in just because she loves so much and she is so loved in return. Um, Tanuva is a character that I felt very close to, um, even though, so she's, she's someone who has this deep personal grief that she's trying to live with. Um, and I was going through a lot of personal grief when I wrote A Day of Fall and I, um, during the process of writing the book, um, all of my grandparents died. And I had to, basically, I not only was I grieving my grandparents, but I was having to reckon with this change in my identity because I had always been a granddaughter and now I essentially wasn't. And I know I still, I still am a granddaughter, regardless whether my grandparents are gone or not. But that part of my life was now very different and I didn't have my, especially my grandmother I was my uh, maternal grandmother I was very close to and I ended up exploring a lot of this through the character of Geneva and it is very much intertwined with her role as a mother um 
she's she has her own biological child um whose loss she is is trying to to process many years later um but she also has this relationship with a sort of adopted uh daughter siu who is the daughter of her partner esbar and yeah i i really enjoyed writing about her and it's always very important to me as well that um i've i've seen a lot of talk about representation of older women in media um so for example recently we had uh well not, not even older women just women sort of above 30 essentially um there was recently a, a letter we had from some actors I, th- I think it was mostly uk based actors but they were basically calling for better representation of women over the age of 45 on screen and that's something that's always been really important to me because I know I've spoken to women who are in their 40s and 50s and above, and they've said that they feel like they're becoming invisible at a certain point and they're not seeing themselves as often in books or in films or TV shows. And I really wanted to push back against that and to celebrate women of all ages and also intergenerational ties between women and um, I also kind of wanted to think about reframing uh, the ageist way that we think about women when we sort of get even even past 30. Um, so there's a few scenes in the book where younger women will look at older women and think, I can't wait to be like her. So there's a scene where Tanuva, uh, she knows a woman who's several decades older than her. And she notices that this woman has like, you know, lines on her face and she thinks, it's she kind of she envies her for that visible wisdom that she has and she she kind of wants to look like that as well so that was it was just important to me to challenge our societal ideas around older women and to present Tanuva as someone who is still very much in the middle of her story and I think that was another thing I wanted to do with um the idea of motherhood with Tanuva is that she she and her partner Esbar are both mothers and they've been mothers for a long time by the time the book starts and I think often motherhood and marriage are presented as the end of a woman's story Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's the happy ending when you settle down and that should be what you're aspiring to and obviously like I've said I don't want to get married or have children myself so I've always found this a bit disquieting that it's such a, a common idea so I thought, okay, well, what if Tanuva and Esbar have already had their children decades ago? And that showed me that it is a really important part of both their stories, but it isn't the end of their stories. It's just part of their journey. I also enjoyed being just sitting in a long-term relationship with those two women. I think that's something we don't read about either is, you know, what happens when you've been together for 20 years and, and in this case, you're still really into each other. Yeah, they really are. Um, I haven't really written an established relationship before. You know, the, the A Day of Fall Night was the first time I'd really done that. And I loved it so, so much. I mean, to have all those years of experience to draw on. So you can talk about things that happened. I mean, Tanuva and Esbar have been together 30 years, but they've known each other for their whole lives and they're both in their early 50s. So you have literally half a century of experiences and joy and grief to draw on. And I loved that. I loved having such rich foundations to their relationship. And it's interesting because when you have obviously a couple who are meeting for the first time, the whole tension lies in, will they get together? How will they get together? Uh, whereas with Esbar and Tanuva, it's how are they going to stay together in the face of mm. all of this conflict that they're going through? So I, I thoroughly enjoyed their relationship. It was such a, a complete joy and it helped that I love both of the characters individually so much. Um, Samantha Shannon, uh, you are a big hit on uh, TikTok, uh, more specifically the corner of TikTok known as BookTok, where um, people just love Priory of the Orange Tree so much. And I, I think one of the reasons that people seem to have taken to it so much is it's really been billed as a sapphic uh, fantasy story. Um, how important is this sapphic aspect to your work? Sure. Um, so for anyone doesn't know, who doesn't know, the word sapphic is derived from Sappho, the ancient Greek poet, and it refers to love and desire between women. Um, that is, it is really important to me, um, partly because I realised in the process of writing The Priory of the Orange Tree that I was not straight, that I was, in fact, sapphic wow. myself. <laughs> it, it, you realised that in the writing? That's amazing. Yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't go into it knowing I was. Um, but when I wrote it, I had 
a, a revelation while while I was writing. So The Priory of the Orange Tree is a, is a very important book to me in that regard. And uh, it ended up being very important in Dumai's story as well, um, because she also kind of is just exploring that aspect of herself when she's in her late 20s. And when I was young, I, it would never have even crossed my mind that I might be gay. So writing this series now um, has been really cathartic for me to, to be able to have that and also to be able to share it with so many other people. Because, I mean, I I must admit, when I wrote the book, I was worried that it was going to be quite niche. Um, and I remember I was having a conversation uh, with my beloved grandmother, who I mentioned earlier, and she kind of looked at me and she said, Samantha, are you absolutely sure that people are going to want to read 800 pages about dragons and lesbians? And I was like, I, I hope so. I hope so. And then I remember when uh, it, the book hit the New York Times, um, she was she was like, oh, obviously they do. Well, good for you. Um, so that was that was nice. And it, it has been really lovely to see that aspect of the book so embraced and to see such a, a passion for sapphic fiction generally. I mean, Priory is very long way from being the only sapphic book that's been celebrated on TikTok. And it's amazing to see so many readers who are responding to that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned 800 pages. Uh, a Day of Fall and Night is similarly about 800 pages long. It's an absolute whopper. I, I'm keen to know, Samantha, how you approach such an enormous project in the writing room because, I mean, this took you, what, three years, which I think is not that long. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't actually sound that long when you say it like that. Um, and that is also working on my Bone Season series at the same time. Um, so I wrote wow. I wrote um, my fourth book, The Mask Falling, uh, sort of it was following a similar-ish timeline to A Day of Fallen Night, so that, that was happening as well. Um, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I am a full-time writer, so I do have, you know, the time to devote to large projects like this. Um, you know, I, I've done it twice now with very large books, and I still couldn't fully explain how I did it, possibly because it's just a blur of of uh, deadlines and, and editing. Um, in its very basic form, I will write a synopsis um, so that I think it's important to have a roadmap. Like I've always said that I want, I need to know the destination, but not exactly how I'm going to get there. So I roughly need to know what's happening at the end of the book. Then I will write a synopsis uh, where I kind of hammer out the plot and then I will just follow it as much as I can really. Um, I leave myself room to manoeuvre if I find that it's not working out exactly like I thought it was going to. Um, but yeah, it was. It has been a an absolutely colossal project. A day of fallen night. It's a uh, hundred chapters, which I'm still so proud of. I wasn't even trying to make it exactly a hundred chapters, but that's how it <laughs> turned out, and I was so delighted. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it was a very long editorial process. There were many very late nights of staying up till 4am and just panicking because the the edits were very tough on it because every single edit I had to go through, it, I think it's actually nearly 900 pages or it's sort of at least close to 850-ish. Um, so it was a pretty gruelling process, but and I'm very, very proud that I'm, I finished it because it, it did feel like my personal Everest. <laughs> yeah, well, I, what I think is the truly amazing achievement is that this book is as big as it is, yet I just was turning page after page after page. It has an incredible pace to it, um, and I enjoyed this so much. Samantha Shannon, it's been wonderful to meet you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lovely chat. And Samantha Shannon's novel, A Day of Fallen Night, is published by Bloomsbury. Ronnie Scott will be here soon, but let's take a little detour into short story territory first. Kate Kennedy is celebrated for her short stories. Her work has even been featured in The New Yorker, which really is the holy grail for short story writers. Her latest story, Art and Life, won the Furphy Literary Award and is featured in its latest anthology. And Sarah Lestrange spoke to Kate Kennedy to find out what the short story means to her. 
kind of see it like a perfect dive or the way that ice skaters execute a perfect kind of swivel. And it has to be right. Everything has to work together. So it's quite a difficult form to get right. I love that image of the short story author as an elite athlete. And Kate Kennedy is just so good at describing the way the writer's mind works. She's a poet and novelist and memoirist, but when her first collection, Dark Roots, was published in 2006, it cemented her as a great short story writer. And Kate's journey to being a writer began as a reader. Well, I was a very early reader, like many writers and many other people who love reading. I can't remember not being able to read. I kind of almost taught myself, I think. And from the very beginning, I always, I couldn't get enough. I loved that feeling of being in the world of the story and being literate, understanding that there's, there's a writer out there who has, is making this for me via this medium and it's not like dance or film or anything this is the medium of language so somehow all we need is literacy to kind of bend us through that prism you know it's a wonderful thing so as a child we moved around a lot my dad was in the air force and so the books were the constant I would take my books with me and we would go to a new place and I would, I would open those books and be back into my, my world and that feeling of wanting to be in that world and anybody, for example, who read, say, the Narnia books and looks at the wardrobe in their room in a whole new way, thinking, is that a portal into somewhere else? In a, in a metaphorical way, yes, it is, because I still dwell in those, those imaginary worlds of childhood. And so it's always been a thing for me. And when I began to read more, I don't know if it's reading more critically, but getting to a point as a teenager of thinking, how did they do that? Wait a minute. I understand that it's misdirection, I understand it's an illusion, but I want to look at it again. I want to read it again and work out the way that I was, that my emotional experience was controlled and, and nurtured to take me to another place. I would like to think that you miss your stop because <laughs> the world that I'm making for you is, is preferable temporarily to be in and it feels realer than the world that is actually around you. I did feel this magic reading Kate's short story Art and Life, which won the 2022 Furphy Short Story Competition. The tale is about the connection and dissonance between life and art. It's about a young boy who goes to university in the city and it's not what he expects. He's come from a, a more cloistered life, I guess, and he believes that his virtuosity at the violin is going to be something that he can use to create an identity that he'll be known by. But of course, that has no currency in his new world. And so he decides he'll go out maybe and uh, busk um, or at least play his violin in public to make money, but he, he realises when he goes out that nobody's interested in how well he plays. Uh, and the people who are making money are the people who are the human statues. And so it's, it's a story that is about that relationship between what we feel we are inside and the public persona that we are presenting. And in my understanding, there's quite a large gap between those two things. The self that we have that's our internal, unvoiced self, full of our transgressive thoughts and oddness and weirdness and stuff, and the public self that we put a fair bit of energy into presenting and tweaking and embellishing and making sure that it's what we want. Uh, but that feels like, and I was thinking about this over COVID because of course we were all living in that second life well. We were all our own avatars because we the real self was inside and we were taking pictures of our sourdough bread or whatever or presenting ourselves as our performative self far more than we had ever done before, I think. And to me, it seemed like quite a hall of mirrors that you could possibly stray into and not be able to come out of. And he goes down that rabbit hole and cannot get back out again. Every author has their tricks and routines to get into the flow state to write, but Kate is suspicious of these tricks and sees them more as obstacles. So how does Kate find her creative spirit? 
I think it's quite frightening, quite scary to think I already know everything I need to write this story. To get to that state and just to think, well, now I have to spin it out of myself somehow. This is the this is the pointy end of it now. There's nothing else I need to research. I'm an expert on this topic that I'm going to write about. It's quite scary. So we have to think, oh, I have to put on my special music or I have to go and do my Pilates first or something because that moment is the the scary moment of I'm going to put anything on the page rather than have nothing on the page. So I don't really have any rituals except to try and talk myself into that state of mind where I can be calm and curious and not freaking out about my fear. I'm going to endow, in fact, a character with those doubts and insecurities so that I don't have to have them. Now, that's all I can... It's like being on a tightrope thinking, there's the other end, don't look down. Get to the end and walk across onto the other platform and then look at what you've got. And maybe you'll be surprised by what you see. To me, the great moment is not satisfaction that I can do it well. It's when I'm able to surprise myself. I think surprise is the great learning moment where something happens that you didn't expect and it turns out better or different even than you would have imagined that it could have been and it's shown you something and you can just feel this sense of I want to keep doing this because it feels powerful and it's become the sort of work that I would do even if I never had another story published I would keep on writing them. with Sarah Lestrange and Kate's short story Art and Life is collected in the latest Furphy anthology. Uh, If you've got a short story you want to tell, why not enter it into the Furphy Literary Award which is open for new short story entries right now. People should be suspicious of literature because literature is powerful. Writers on Writing, the book show with Claire Nichols. Now, what do you remember about the first couple of months of 2020, the months just before the lockdown when the bushfires raged across Eastern Australia? It was a time of so much uncertainty, fear, confusion. For many, the air was literally thick. And this strange time is the setting for Ronnie Scott's new novel, Shirley. The book introduces us to a 30-something Melbourne woman who's newly single, estranged from her mum, and intrigued by the oh-so-cool pregnant woman who's just moved in downstairs. And Ronnie, I've got to say you had me on side from the epigraph uh, because you quoted the TV show 30 Rock. (laughs) I'm glad. The quote is, uh, the night is young and neither are you (laughs) by Tracy Jordan. Uh, Why this epigraph? I, you know, it, it. I mean, I'm, I'm a slow writer, and uh, I sort of use epigraphs at different points. I think to kind of to kind of peg uh, like a feeling or a, or an ambition for different drafts. Uh, and I remember when I when I landed on this, it was partly because I, I it has sort of a jokey tone to it, right? And I thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm writing about this fairly grim time, as you say. You know, the the air is thick, it's smoky, terrible things are happening, uh, and worse things, uh, arguably worse things are about to happen with the pandemic um, after that couple of months. But I really wanted this feeling where, you know, you, you kind of have this this woozy sort of lightness to it. And um, 30 Rock has this sort of hard, hard-nosed, hard-edged humour to it. Um, that epigraph as well is from the last episode of 30 Rock, which is about business relationships. Uh, and that's one of the things I was interested in talking about in the book, um, as well as the sense that this woman, this narrator, uh, is at a point where she's starting to consider her life differently uh, in her 30s. Yeah. It's also kind of nonsensical, which is (laughs) (laughs) Which is also a quality of of aspects of the book. Uh, So I said this book is set in the period between bushfires and COVID. Uh, What do you remember about this time in Melbourne, Ronnie? Like I said, I'm slow. So the book 
kind of, I think, was about six years from from nose to tail. Um, so I'd been working on it for a few years already and then was working on it for a couple of years after this this kind of summer window where it was set. But I remember the the area of Collingwood where I, where I lived at the time and my partner as well lived kind of five minutes walk from me, uh, both in one bedroom apartments. Um, I have to say not, not very like the the one bedroom apartment that the woman lives in in the book that's a little bit more like my partner's apartment strangely sort of a, a dream-like version of that of that apartment block maybe because at the time it was sort of a um a ref a, a respite for me mm. a, a different place that you're allowed to go even in the lockdowns uh, and we did so much kind of walking around that that area um that i sort of I, I think that there was kind of a slow-moving, um, you know, bit large events happening around you, um, but in practice, kind of quiet and calm. And uh, if not, well, if not calm, then like I said before, slowness. That was sort of the the vibe I think of those those few months, and I I wanted to transport that into the book. Was this a way of working through this time for yourself as well, Ronnie? I mean, I think for people living in Melbourne, you know, the last couple of years have been so rough. Um, in writing down all this woman's concerns about what's happening in the world, did it help you figure some of that stuff out? That's interesting. Yeah. By the way, thank you for acknowledging our, our long lockdowns in Melbourne. Melbourneians love it when, when people do that. And uh, and I think we, we have a, a sense of ourselves as being very um, kind of hard done by in that time. But I, th- I think, yeah, of course, I mean, writing always helps you work through whatever's going on around you. Um, I think that, that one of the reasons to write fiction, though, is that fiction can reflect experience. It can divert from experience and can be absorbing. Uh, it can sort of refract and change experience as well. And so I think that there's there's a big difference between writing a novel that is in some ways linked to, to the pandemic uh, and the bushfires uh, and, you know, writing a, a blog or a memoir or something like that. Although I guess you transform experience in writing nonfiction as well. Mm. The last time you were on the show, um, this was after your first novel, The Adversary, uh, you said you were writing this next book and you said it was easier uh, the second time and you would probably (laughs) rue saying that. Uh, So I did want to follow up, hold you accountable. Was it actually easier in the end? I'm so glad we have that on tape. I, I was actually just saying to someone the other day that it never got that it never got easy. Uh, I, I was complaining to someone um, who <laughs> I hadn't spoken to for a few years, um, saying, you know, there was uh, there's this sense when you're writing a novel sometimes where you kind of have a breakthrough and it becomes fun and you know you know the characters and you know what you're doing. And I said this never happened with Shirley, um, but obviously it did at some point, and that was when I was when I was talking to ABC. <laughs> we got you at a weak moment. <laughs> You know, you say it doesn't get easy. Why? Why do you keep doing it? I, I just this is what I marvel about with writers is why you don't go. This is too hard. I'm going to do something else. You must have had some some very interesting and and varied answers to this question um, over time. I'm sure. I, for for me, it's 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 that. You, uh, I don't know how to explain it except to say that that what I like about writing and when I'm happiest, I think, is at this point. And I guess everyone would have different favorite points. For me, it's at this point where you've made a made a big mess, uh, and you know, I, I write at volume, I write a lot, and then I use it to figure out the shape of the story and what the characters are and the sorts of things that I may want to find out or the may, uh, the sorts of things that I may want to say, which are usually fairly foggy and ambiguous contradictory things, which is one of the things fiction is good at as well. And then you get to start sorting it out. So it becomes this kind of puzzle making or puzzle solving moment. Uh, it's, it's that mix of, of sort of expressiveness and, and order, I think, that, that I really like about writing fiction. Yeah, that does sound extremely satisfying when you can kind of solve the novel. <laughs> it's like tidying a desk or tidying a, a kitchen or something in, in that same way. Or yeah, tidying a kitchen is probably a better example. I'm just looking at a desk right now, which is why I said that. But uh, you know, you you cook something and so you make a mess, and then you you reorder it, and it's that mix of that mix of things. And I'm glad you mentioned food because we are going to come back to food. There's a lot of great sounding food in this novel. Um, the novel is called Shirley. We need to make it clear before we start, Shirley is not a character. Shirley is a place. Yes, Shirley 
is the name of the house that the narrator grew up in. So, at the at the start of the book, when the narrator is actually it's 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 set at the end of of six lockdowns in Melbourne, and the narrator is thinking back to uh, to the time directly before the first lockdown, uh, and is thinking about the sorts of people who were in her life at that at that point. And it, there's kind of a couple of layers of of time to it. Um, in that time, what's happening is her understanding of sort of her more distant past is changing. And in this distant past, she grew up in a house called Shirley. Uh, this house called Shirley, you know, when I say it's the distant past, she's moved to an apartment that is very, very close to Shirley. It's kind of in the next suburb over. But Shirley is this uh, this small townhouse in Abbotsford that her mother in the early 2000s demolished and rebuilt um, on, a, on a small piece of land uh, when she started to become successful as a cooking show host. And what happened in the early 2000s was when the narrator was uh, a, a girl was that the mother was, uh, was photographed in this kind of, you know, not terrible, but strange and scandalous um, position. So she's, she's, the photo is flash photography at night in this kind of glamorous, shiny cyan green coat covered in blood. Uh, and there was media speculation about it. And she left the country and she left the narrator in the house, Shirley, to be raised by her biggest fan uh, and assistant, a man named Gerald. And so Shirley in the book is this house that, that she has to go back to. The house is being sold. It's also, you know, the side of the side of her past, the side of things that she doesn't understand about her, about her mother. The reason the book is called Shirley is, is never really said in the book. I, I it's, I, I, there are always things that that it can be really good to leave open and that you can read in different ways. Um, but I was initially inspired a long time ago by the book Shirley by Charlotte Bronte, uh, which is a book, you know, really broadly um, about uh, a woman owning land. And also the book is kind of about gender as well and the relationships between men and women, largely queer men and largely straight women. And Shirley, before the book by Charlotte Bronte, was mostly considered a man's name. Mm. And then it mm. became a largely female name after that usage in that book. So there's lots of different reasons for it. Wow. So we've got our narrator. She doesn't have a name, so bear with us, listeners. Um, her mother was this TV cooking celebrity and, as you say, left the country after this kind of scandalous photo was taken in front of the house, Shirley. Um, this poor narrator, um, her mum left her behind. What is the relationship like between our narrator and her mother? <laughs> it's actually in my in my view quite good. I mean she she has this this very distant relationship with her with her mother or it it was always always very distant. There was you know she she doesn't say this in the book but she would have felt abandoned. She would have felt left behind. She also I guess would have had this mix of of admiration and consternation all around her mother, as as I guess we would any figure of uh, of love and authority who who leaves. Right, that's sort of a, a classic trope in in literature uh, or in in storytelling and in life. But also, there was this point, kind of a few years before the events in the novel, where the narrator makes this decision in her in her late twenties that she's going to have a good relationship with her mother and she's going to meet her mother on her own terms uh, and also present herself to her mother on her own terms. So they have this strange relationship, you know, that is not completely honest. It's certainly not warm. It's it's uh, a conversation that happens, you know, usually with phone tag and her mother being in another time zone. So we've got our narrator navigating this relationship with her mum. She's also newly single. Her... Ex-partner David, uh, he's younger, uh, he's a bit confused about his sexuality, he seems to be a bit of a lost soul. Uh, what went wrong with our narrator and David? Yeah, I mean, David's a, David's a very nice character. The narrator and David have been together for a few years when the book starts. David is, is a little younger than the narrator, um, not, not drastically, but he, I think, acts quite a bit younger. Uh, and really, he... he Wants to start experimenting with men not long before the book begins, but I think that that becomes a catalyst for them to, to break up because 
they are just very different people and I guess have been together in a time when a lot of people are, are sort of in relationships figuring themselves out at the same time as they're navigating or negotiating a relationship. Uh, but David also lives in the same apartment block as the narrator. I, I can't think of anything worse than breaking up with someone, <laughs> having them live across the hall and be in a lockdown. I mean, it's, it's truly a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then downstairs, we've got this new couple, and I'm going to use that word couple very loosely. She is pregnant. Uh, she is like a food entrepreneur, I guess you'd call her. Um, and then this other guy's with her. Can you explain what's going on with these couple downstairs? I can. So this, I mean, this is the opening scene of, of the book uh, where it's it's New Year's Eve. There's bushfire smoke all around. But what's happening in the world of these characters is kind of a upstairs, downstairs, romantic, romantic drama scene. Well, that's the scene anyway. Uh, the narrator and David get home early from sort of a bad night on New Year's Eve and they get called into this downstairs apartment which they've seen being refurbed and the woman who owns the apartment and lives in the apartment, slightly older woman named Frankie, uh, she's pregnant. She turns out to be David's boss to add another layer of, of complication. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't want to have a drink on New Year's Eve with his with his boss. Uh, she runs uh, a food food warehouse up the road. And she has this this live-in partner who it, it becomes clear over the course of this scene is is not a romantic partner. Um, he's someone who she paid uh, to father the child that she's pregnant with. And they, uh, I guess, haven't worked out the terms of what, what they're going to do beyond that. He's sort of live-in help as well, uh, at, least, at least for now. And he's this kind of brash person named Alex. They're kind of, oh, I hope this is okay to say, they're kind of insufferable, uh, but... <laughs> But our narrator can't seem to stay away from them. She finds them both so engaging. Yeah, there's this this sense that uh, she's both attracted to and repulsed by them, right? And yeah, for reasons yeah. that she can't that she can't quite place. Uh, there's some great food in this book, as I mentioned earlier, not from the TV cook mum, who's actually not a very good cook at all, um, but from our narrator. She's vegan um, and she just makes this fabulous sounding food. Everything's kind of rich and oily and full of garlic. It's all such a treat. Uh, why such a focus on food, Ronnie? It's funny you should say that. I was um I was going through some diet stuff at the time I was writing the book, and one of the things that I cut out was garlic. So I didn't realize that all the, bo <laughs> that's the book why there's so <laughs> the book much is garlic. so full of garlic. But maybe that's just my yeah my um my craven desires expressing themselves through fiction. But um I wanted something that's very maybe because the the narrator is so cerebral, and she's always thinking about you know, what, what things mean around her as well as having different blind spots. Uh, and because it's, it's first person narration, so you're always in the person's head. I, it's kind of good to have something that's really sensuous. And there's, you know, one of the scenes where she bonds with Frankie is Frankie comes in when she's making scrambled tofu. I thought it was kind of entertaining to have a, a really sensuous bonding scene over scrambled tofu that someone's making at three in the afternoon. But at the same time, I, I guess food became something that she can be committed to and devoted to by herself. She's often cooking alone. Uh, and, you know, surely some of that um, mirrors real life as well, because, you know, it's being re rewritten through lockdowns. I was thinking about that. I think during lockdown, food became such a highlight of people's day, didn't it? What can I make myself? How can I treat myself now? Yeah. And what, I mean, one of the, the things that I like about the narrator is that she has these these things going for her already. Um, she al Already her dream is to come home and be by herself in an apartment and take off her shoes after walking home from work and make something for herself, um, preferably alone. And that sort of, I guess, has this ominous edge to it in the book because she's you know we we know whether she knows or not she's about to be doing that for a long long time uh but you know she uh, in many ways her her life kind of forecasts those conditions of lockdown she enjoys food already mm. ronnie scott your book shirley is published by hamish hamilton thanks for joining me today thank you so much for the great questions claire i appreciate it it's my pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to the book show made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Wajak Noongar people. My name is Claire Nichols and this show's producer is Sarah Lestrange. Thanks, Sarah, and thanks to you for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.